what I like about that video, and I think it's a good illustration of what we're going to talk about tonight, is the concept for the contest was they have to find, uh, they have to make a video of using photography equipment in the wrong ways, and that's what they did. And in a similar way, well, what we're going to talk about tonight is, and the title of this message is, it's not what you're meant for. It's not what you're meant for. In order to uh, uh, truly appreciate something that's valuable, you have to use it in the way that it was designed to be used. Okay? So just like you have valuable camera equipment, it's useless if you don't use it for the purpose of which it was created. If you had a diamond ring, right? And let's say that I bought five diamond rings. And it's like, wow, all the ladies are like, oh, man, that's awesome. I love diamonds, whatever. And I decided to use them as brass knuckles. Probably hurt, probably work, but that's not what they're meant for. Imagine if one of you worked really hard on a painting and you worked for weeks, hours upon hours of labor to create this painting and you hoped that I would appreciate it, hang it in my room or something. And I saw it and I was like, awesome. And then I used it as a dinner plate. And then I just plopped my spaghetti right on top of your painting and ate off of it and said, totally appreciate what you've done. That's not what it's meant to do. And so when you don't use something in the way that it was intended, it becomes a tragedy. And so what we have to realize is that each of us was created for a purpose and we owe it to our creator to use our lives in the way that he has designed. So look at me with, uh, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. It says, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the, from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So him beginning in this verse saying that you get to call on your heavenly father. And if you do, you're a child of God. He is a God who doesn't have favorites. You know, maybe you have parents that have their favorite child and they pretend like they don't. But no one likes to not be the favorite child. But luckily, our Father, our Heavenly Father, does not have favorites. You don't have to worry about God hearing some prayers over other prayers. No pastor is more holy than the next so that his prayers are heard more than somebody else. And without partiality, he will judge according to each one's work. So in review, some of the things that we've been talking about is that God's children have a living hope. We have an undefiled, incorruptible, and unfading inheritance in the heavens. We have a secure salvation, and we have a reason to rejoice in trials. That's what we've been talking about in the past weeks. That since our hope is based on a God who cannot lie, we can trust everything that he says. It's a firm, secure anchor that's in the bedrock of truth. We have an inheritance that God has stored up for us in heaven that we can look forward to. And our salvation itself is secure. 
We know where we're going when we die, unlike other people that don't have hope in this world. And we also have a reason to rejoice even when things get tough. And we've been told these things so that we can set our mind to pursue God and his kingdom. The reason why he told us these things is so that we can focus not on the things of this world, but on the things that really, really matter. And we can pursue those things and reject the old ways of living. When I was a freshman, I really, so up, up till eighth grade, I didn't really care about talking to girls. I thought I'll have my time to do that in high school. And so literally when I became a freshman in high school, I started texting every girl I knew, riding my bike everywhere I could to girls' houses, whatever, you know, had a relationship, quote unquote, as a freshman. And what that means is you go over people's houses and you pretend like you text each other and that makes you girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And so I would talk to multiple girls at the same time, some of them best friends with each other. And I, I know, I was weird. I was a really weird kid. I think I've told you that. But what's really interesting, what's really interesting is I would waste my time doing this so much so that I stopped playing basketball. And that's the thing that I really love to do. I would just waste my time hanging out with girls, whatever, as a freshman. Like, really, I don't know what I was thinking. But when I went on my very first mission trip to Hungary back in 2003, long time ago, wow, 12 years ago, I remember going out over there and being able to evangelize for maybe the, one of the first times ever. And as I did, and people were getting saved, and I was able to share my faith growing up in a Christian school, having the head knowledge, not really applying it, it was the first time I ever got to apply the things that I knew. Otherwise, it was just me memorizing Bible verses for what? I don't know. For later? I don't know. But I noticed all those verses I had memorized were coming out of nowhere, and I was able to recite them and see the power of the things that I took for granted changing people's lives. And I stopped texting every single one of those girls when I got back. I was ruined for anything else because I had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. And it really wasn't that much to give up. But that was what was occupying all of my time when I was a freshman. And in the same way, God has called you to his work. You have gifts, abilities. You have talents, passions that God has given you. It says in Romans 12, verse 6 through 8, that having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, God has given to each one of you a measure of faith. You have a gift, a charisma, something that God has entrusted to you. And because of that, we should use them. It does no good to receive a free gift from God that you can bless other people with, but keep it to yourself. What good is it if you buy the latest camera and you never use it? You just keep it at home. What good is it if you win a surfboard at a climbing competition years ago, like I did? And to this day, I've never used it. It just sits in my room. $800 custom surfboard that I won a climbing competition. Never surfed in my life. And it serves me no use. I should just give it away eventually, I guess. What are your gifts and what are you doing with them? That's the question I would ask you this evening. What are your gifts? What are the, th the things that God has given you? Because maybe you don't know. Maybe you're sitting here and you're just not sure who you are and what God has entrusted you with. 
And so because of that, you don't know what to do with it or how to use it. But I would suggest to you to find out what those gifts are. Maybe talk to a leader after, or we can discuss it further in the message tonight. Because you will have to give an account for the time and resources you have been given. The fact of the matter is, because we know in this verse that God does not have favorites. He has no partiality. He doesn't treat one better than the other. Because of that, we have to realize that every single one of us has a gift. If you believe that Billy Graham had a gift, guess what? God doesn't love Billy Graham more than he does you. If you believe that Joshua in the Bible was used, guess what? God isn't going to use him any more than he would you unless you do not put your faith in him. The Bible actually says in the book of James, hey, listen, that guy Elijah, the prophet, he was a mere man, and he prayed, and it stopped raining. And then he prayed again, and it started raining. Why should we be uh, bewildered? Why, why should we be drawn back by some of these things that happen, these miracles, when we believe in a real God who can do them? Why should it surprise us when miraculous things happen? In the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, talks about, and many of you are familiar, familiar with the story, there's a guy who's given 10 talents, some less talents, and some of those people that have more talents multiply those talents. But there's one guy who took one talent and hid it in the ground because he was afraid, knowing that his master was a hard taskmaster. And so because of that, he took the one talent, he hid it, it didn't grow interest, he didn't put it in the bank, and it was required of him. And the master said, you wicked and lazy servant. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive th the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All of us are going, going to have to give an account for the things that we've been given. And many of us are not using our lives in the purpose for which it was created. And we are chasing after meaningless things. We are occupying our time with things that ultimately don't matter in the end. They can even be good things, but they're not supposed to take the place of what God's mission is on our lives. And because of that, you are not using your life for what it was meant for. The Bible speaks about how God, like an earthly father, disciplines those that he loves. He is the father that, that we call upon. And he disciplines us when we go astray. When we start to use our lives in a, in a way that we're not supposed to use it, thankfully, if you are his child, there will be a limit to how far you can run away from him before he disciplines you. Discipline. It's when our earthly fathers, our heavenly father, corrects us when we do wrong. And our Heavenly Father corrects us when we sin so that we don't go any farther from His calling. Maybe there's been a time when you've been caught doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Maybe your parents caught you drinking. Your parents caught you doing something on social media, cursing, saw text messages, went into your room when you were looking at things you weren't supposed to be looking at. Realize this, when you get caught, that is God's mercy. It is God's mercy when you get caught. 
because that prevents you from getting any farther and any deeper in the sin that you are in. If a person is committing adultery and that person is caught, it is God's mercy, not God's judgment if you are his child. And that is so important to realize because many of us can fear God in a very unhealthy way rather than thanking him that he has prevented us from going any farther than we should go. But when we are caught, we should have a healthy fear of ever getting to that place again. Just like when you get in trouble, you'll say things like, oh my gosh, my parents are going to kill me. When you say that, you don't mean that they're literally going to kill you. You have a healthy fear of their discipline. And rightfully, we should fear God's correction. So the first thing we, there are two things that we should fear. And the first thing that we want to go over tonight is that we should fear God's discipline. When we are going about our life, we should fear doing the wrong thing and seeing the punishment, seeing what results of our sin. I should fear what could happen if I stumbled into sin. I should have a healthy fear of the danger that could arise and the people I could hurt. You know, if, if I decided to just go off and do whatever I wanted, I decided I was like, you know what, I'm just going to start drinking and go partying with some of my non-Christian friends and getting drunk. It's not just me that's affected. It's everyone around me. It would be you guys. You guys would be stumbled. Many of you would be hurt. I'd lose my ministry. I would lose a lot of things. And I should fear that discipline. I should fear losing friendships and relationships with a lot of you guys. In the same way, we should fear the discipline that God would bring when we sin. But know that that discipline is because he loves us, because he is our heavenly father. The second thing we should fear is his displeasure. The second part of verse 17 says, conduct yourselves through that, throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So fear God's discipline and also fear his displeasure. You know, many of you know my mom. She's one of the cutest people ever. I love her. And so if she's listening, she probably is going to listen to this later because she listens to all my messages. So I love you, mom. My mom has always been very, very supportive of everything I've ever done. I started a screaming band in my house. Like some of you, you get yelled at when your parents, when your parents are like, you know, don't play that music. You're too loud. I literally would have band practice every Friday night after I graduated Impact in my room, screaming at the top of my lungs. I, I have no idea what my neighbors were thinking at the time. I could do that every week. And she would come in and say, I think you're getting better. Like, <laughs> so like listening to her son scream at the top of her lungs, these death growls. And she's like, I think it, you sound really good. And listen to the music I'm listening to. It's like, oh, is that you? And it's like, no, that's one of my favorite bands, but that's not me. Always supportive. Anytime, just to give you another idea of how supportive my mom is. I would say, I'm going on a road trip to Florida with my friends. We'll be gone for seven days. See you later. She would not ask me any questions. She wouldn't call me during the week. She'd say, okay, have fun, bye. And that's it. That's literally it. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, you have the best parents ever. I, I probably do. I remember going to Hungary for the first time, and all the parents are freaking out because 
back in those days, they didn't really do high school mission trips. It was one of the first ones that Joey Rozak took. It, it was actually the first one that Joey Rozak took. It was taking 30 kids to a foreign country in Hungary. All the parents were freaking out. Oh my gosh, it's going to be the jungle. There's no jungles in Hungary, but oh my, my child's going to die and whatever. And so I felt like, man, my parents don't care. Like they're, they don't seem worried at all. They haven't like brought up any concerns. They don't want me to call, whatever. So I, I told my parents this, and my mom's like, don't you have faith in God? <laughs> like, yeah, I guess I do. My mom has always been very supportive of me, and I think you get that. And because she's been so supportive of me, there's been this weight upon my shoulders of I don't want to disappoint my mom. I don't want to live my life in such a way that after she's done so much to support me throughout my life, Giving me money to go on mission trips, money to go on retreats, helping me every step of the way, anytime I want to do something. If I said I'm dropping out of school, which I did for a year uh, from college, not from high school, to figure out what I want to do with my life, they were okay with it. And that is a burden and that is a weight to carry because if it's the case that I did something that disappointed them, I would think about how much my parents love me and I still took it all for granted. So... That being said, I think about, you know, the fact that um, many of you know that I was, my mom was actually married before uh, my dad, and th um, that man died of cancer before I was born. My middle name is named after him, Michael, and I didn't find that out until a couple years ago. Some of you already know the story. But knowing that there is a man, the thing that tripped me out is someone had to die in order for me to live. If he didn't pass away, I would never be on this planet. And that to me was a weight I had to carry. And, and kind of, I felt like, and I don't know if this is true, so you don't have to repeat this, I'll probably edit this out. I felt like the reason why my mom is so supportive is because she felt like I was going to be something great which would justify some of the hurt in her life, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's true. Sometimes I theorize about that. Maybe I should talk to her about it someday. That's a huge weight to carry. To be given so much freedom that you want to live in a way to show your love and adoration and thankfulness for the person who's given you so much. And that is just a tiny fragment of what we have because of what Jesus has done for us. And because Jesus has given us so much, we should live our, our lives in a way that shows our gratitude to him. Fearing being afraid of what we are capable of in disappointing our Heavenly Father. I remember one of the darkest years of my life, one of the darkest times where I wasn't living in the right way. I was the closest I've ever been to being a backsliding Christian. And I just completely felt miserable, absolutely in darkness. Didn't really have a lot of friends at that time. I felt like I was wasting my life. I wasn't reading the Bible. You know, imagine a day when that didn't happen. And I felt like I was wasting everything I had been given. And I knew I was disappointing everybody around me. And that is a scary place to be in. And that's a place where I never want to be ever again. And it's good to have a healthy fear of that. A healthy fear of our Heavenly Father's displeasure. So we have to go over two things. There, there are healthy fears and unhealthy fears. A healthy fear is fearing the real negative consequences of our actions. That's a healthy fear. To be afraid of the actual consequences 
that may be bad of what we do. If I am afraid that I might burn my hand on a stove, that's good. I should be afraid of that. That is healthy for me to do that. Because if I am not afraid of burning my hand on a stove, guess what? I'm going to touch it. I'm going to get burnt. It's okay to have that fear. You know, the people, of, uh, the people in Egypt, Pharaoh's officials, when Moses was calling down hail as one of the ten plagues, uh, when people of Israel were being brought out of Egypt during the Passover, it says this in Exodus chapter 9. Check this out. It says, some of Pharaoh's officials were afraid because of what the Lord had said. They quickly brought their servants and livestock in from the fields, but those who paid no attention to the word of the Lord left theirs out in the open. So the people that were afraid of the word of God and feared the Lord listened to what God was saying. And so a healthy fear will lead us to obedience, obey the voice of God. And that's perfectly fine. I should have a healthy fear of not cooking bacon properly. Because if I don't cook it properly, I might get sick. I might get other people sick. Now, there's also something called an unhealthy fear. An unhealthy fear is, I'm afraid that I might get everybody sick by cooking bacon, even just once, and because there's a potential of me getting people sick, I'm never going to cook in my life, which is kind of where I stand right now. You can't have an unhealthy fear of those things. An unhealthy fear is fearing the unknown negative consequences of our actions. Healthy fear is fearing the real negative consequences. Unhealthy fear is fearing the hypothetical negative consequences of our actions. So, that's like, like I just said, fearing the possibilities of how many people could get sick if I'm being a germaphobe and not washing my hands of the germs and... You can be so afraid of everything. If I drive on the road, what if someone hits me? If I go into New York City, what if I get in, you know, someone mugs me? I don't, and because you have so many irrational, hypothetical fears, those fears can cripple you and paralyze you from taking any action. It's kind of like the person in the parable of the talents. He hid his one talent because he was afraid of messing up, trying and failing, disappointing. And many of us spiritually are in the same boat. We never evangelize because there's a possibility that we might be rejected. We never read the Bible because we might find out that has some things to say about the way that we're living. You know, it's really important that we have a healthy fear and not an unhealthy fear. Because the unhealthy fear is always hypothetical and it cripples us. Whereas a healthy fear will lead us to obey the voice of God because it's based on love. That's how you make the distinction. Healthy fear is based on love. Because I love my parents, I'm afraid of disappointing them. But if I had absolutely no relationship with my parents and I thought they were crazy taskmasters who just wanted me to be miserable all of my life, I would have an unhealthy fear of them. And so the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear, and the fear that it's talking about is the fear that causes torment. And so because of this, Jesus, remember, is coming soon. And we have an obligation to use our resources accordingly. 
Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So this is the sense that we get when it says, Throughout the time of your stay here, conduct yourself in fear. The reason why is because we have limited time here on this planet. Such limited time. And we want to be able to use all of our lives, all of our resources, all of our giftings to the glory of God and fear what could happen when we take those things and use it for ourselves. You notice any time that you sin, what you're doing is you're seeking your own glory. You're seeking your own pleasure apart from God. You're seeking your own will apart from God's will. And because we are living in this foreign land temporarily, we should be aware of two different things. Two different things. Have an awareness, because remember, Peter is writing to pilgrims that are scattered abroad, people that are sojourners just walking through this land temporarily. Awareness of our temporality should cause two things. Number one, being aware that our time is short should affect the urgency of our gospel message. Being aware that our time is short should affect the urgency of our gospel message, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. My very first job was at Peter Pank Diner. And actually, I just found out this week that they're closing on December 17th. They have the best cheesesteaks, the best, even better than Philly. And I'll stand by that. And at my very first job, I was a busboy. And if you've worked in a dining establishment, they tell you not to stand, or sorry, not to sit. You're not allowed to sit the entire time. So I'm standing as a busboy, even though I'm not really doing anything. I'm just watching people eat. I'm not walking up to people. I'm cleaning up. And I had to stand the entire six hours, seven hours that I'd be working. And the reason why I could endure the standing is because I knew my time was limited. I was only going to be standing there for six or seven hours, and then I'd be able to rest. I'd be able to go on break and have a seat and eat my cheesesteak. And in the same way, because our time is limited, when we know that, we don't have time to sit on the sidelines. We don't have time to sit around and relax and pretend like everything's fine. We are at war. Imagine you were going on vacation with your family, and you were going to stay at a hotel for a week, and God spoke to you through a vision through the word of God, however you can choose, fill in the story. And God spoke to you, I want you to speak to that receptionist. I want you to speak to that hotel clerk in the front desk. And you only have a week to do it. Now, how many of us would do it the first day? And how many of us would wait to the last day? Well, you know, if I do it the first day and things go bad, then I'm going to see him the next day the next day and the next day. And I'll see him all seven days. It's going to be really weird. So you wait to the last day. And then at the last moment, you let them know so that if it's awkward, you never see them ever again. Glory, hallelujah. Many of us treat our lives in this exact same way. When God calls us to evangelize, we say, I'll do it tomorrow. And God says, bring your friend to impact. You say, I'll do it next week. When God says, read your Bible, you say, I'll do it in the morning. We always push things off till tomorrow because we don't recognize the urgency of today. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. You see, our theology here is that actually one day we're going to be raptured. We believe that. 
As crazy as that sounds, we believe that one day God's going to show up in the clouds, come back, and we're going to be caught up in the air, and then everything's over. And we're going we're gonna to begin our new lives from that point forward. If we believe that, then that means that at any point in time, God can come back. Should that not affect the urgency with which we give the gospel message? We are not guaranteed tomorrow. So when we speak to our friends about Jesus, that might be the last time we are able to share. And that may be the last time they will hear. Listen to me very carefully. Pay attention to this. Everybody here. The next person you share the gospel with could be the last person you share the gospel with. The next person you share the gospel with, that person, it might be the last time that they hear the word of God. Should that not affect the way that we present the message of Christ? That we're not pushing it off till tomorrow. That we're not figuring that we're going to fix our lives tomorrow, but we come to Jesus today. Number two. The second thing that this awareness does is that being aware that our time is short should also affect how we spend our time. So not only should it affect the gospel message, but being aware that our time is short should affect how and where we spend our time. In the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, I can summarize it uh, for you so you guys don't have to turn there. Basically, there's a guy who's a rich man who was gaining a lot of crops, and he got so much crops, you know, he had so much stuff, that he's like, ah, man, I got to build some storehouses to store all my stuff. And so he worked really hard, stored all his stuff. He's like, oh, after all my labor, I finally got all of my stuff into one house. Now I will say, relax, be merry, because you have labored so hard, and now you can just chill out. And this is what God says to this rich fool. He says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And so listen very carefully. It says this. So is he, in other words, you would be a fool who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When we lay up treasures for ourselves, it is all in vain because you can't take it with you. We are to be rich towards the kingdom of God. Think about this. How did Jesus spend his time on earth? What did he do? Did he show up on the planet and just like, oh, man, I know I have to, like, heal people. I'll do that tomorrow. Oh, I know I'm supposed to, like, talk about myself and stuff, but, like, I'm going to do that, like, next week. I'm kind of scared. You know, those people have guns. and They don't have guns at all. They have swords. <laughs> guns. They have swords. That looks kind of scary. No. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen, you may have not come down from heaven, but shouldn't that be our heart too? I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was God's will? It was this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Being found in appearance as a man, he, being Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Remember, a healthy fear leads us to obey the voice of the Lord. When we revere and honor God, it will cause us to live our lives in such a way that our, our time is short, we recognize that, and so we want to live in a way of obedience towards Him. 
And what Jesus did is he was so obedient that he laid down his life itself for us. Our time is precious. And it's much more precious when we consider what Christ has paid for our freedom. That we are literally living on borrowed time. You know, many people say that about terminally ill people. They're on borrowed time. And what they say and what they mean by that is the person has a limited amount of time to live before they die. It's inevitable. They will die. And it's true. All of us are living on borrowed time because all of us will, in fact, die at some point. And so how are we living our life today in recognition of what Christ has done? So look at this. Verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Think about this. People are impressed by a lot of things today. They're impressed by man mansions, gold jewelry. You know, people will look at things and, and be wowed, impressed. But have you ever thought about what impresses God? What is precious to him? Well, I think the answer is the blood of Christ. The precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. I want you to think about a question right now. And this may seem like a strange question, but think about it with me. Is it ever okay to torture somebody? Is it ever okay? Should we allow people to be tortured? I know some governments believe that's okay. You know, if we have enemies of the state, enemies of our country, and we need information, some people believe that you should be able to torture people. But I will tell you one thing. Nobody believes that it is okay to torture an innocent person. Let's say that there's a person who had stolen a car and there was a mom and her child and she got her car hijacked and this man took the car, pulled out the mom and didn't realize there's a baby inside that car. Drives the car around the neighborhood, whatever, ditches the car, the police catch him. And no matter how much they ask him, he will not tell them where the car is. They're on limited time because the baby is in the car. It's a hot summer day and it's, there's a possibility that that child might die. Is it possible that we would allow the police officer to use force in order to get the answer? I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. I don't know of anyone that believes that even if you think that's okay, which is still hard to rationalize, that you would beat someone to get an answer to save a child's life. Who would rationalize saying that it's okay to torture an innocent person so that other people can benefit? But do you see, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. How is it okay that Jesus was tortured and the rest of us go free? Why is it okay that Jesus had to lay down his life and that's perfectly acceptable? Why is that okay? There's one reason and one reason only, and that's because Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life 
that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. Realize this, the reason why Jesus came and died on the cross was not because he was under compulsion, it's because he loves each and every one of you, that he laid down his life of himself. That Jesus gave himself to be wounded so that every wound that you and I experience would only be temporary. Because we have the possibility of redemption and freedom. But let me ask you a further question. If the blood of Christ is precious to God, why in the world does it often not seem that precious to us? We sing songs like, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We take communion. And sometimes we become numb to the sacrifice Christ has made. Have you ever sat in communion and just not really sure what to think about or been distracted or you sing the song and you know the concept but you've heard it so many times that you just almost become numb to it. How is it that that can happen? Well, I would say this. I think one of the reasons why we, be, we become numb to Christ's sacrifice is that we don't realize what we are saved from. One of the reasons why we become desensitized to what Jesus has done for us is because we don't really realize what Jesus has saved us from. If I said to any one of you, Raritan Bay, Raritan Bay, Raritan Bay, Raritan Bay, all of you are just, you would look at me really confused. And I look, if I shouted it with passion, Raritan Bay, all of you would still look confused. Unless you asked me a question. Where is my cousin being hospitalized? And then I said, Raritan Bay. Because you had the question, I gave you the answer and you applied it. But many times we just give the answer, but none of us has asked of ourselves a personal question. We can shout, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? That's the question. If all we do is shout, nothing but the blood of Jesus, but none of us has made personal the question, what can wash away my sins, my sins, my personal sins, it's not going to move us. Because we're going to be singing about something that somebody else did for somebody else. What can wash away my sins that I don't really have because everybody else has sins? Jesus. Realize this. When we recognize our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, then that causes us to cry out with passion and thankfulness. Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And that doesn't necessarily mean a person who's done drugs and drank alcohol. That can mean the person who's grown up in the church their whole life but thinks they need no forgiveness. That person's in more danger because they feel like they can get to heaven based on their own good works. And listen, if that's you, this verse is perfect for you because it says in the latter half of verse 18 that we were saved from what? Your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. This word redemption, redeemed, is literally talking about being bought out of slavery. 
And some of us don't get that concept because we don't have slaves here. But in those days, it was very common that Jesus came to redeem us, to buy us back, purchase us from the slaves that we were, slaves to ourselves and slaves to traditions that Jesus did not invent. I love what Wayne Grudem says. He's a commentator. He says, we were removed from sinful patterns of life and placed in the sphere of obedience. Think about this. Your conduct, you might think that your works are good, but if it's not done for the will of God, it's aimless. Completely and utterly pointless. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's all vanity and grasping for the wind. But Jesus came to save us from those traditions. From the people who thought, I can get to heaven based on how good I am. Or maybe not even that, you just don't think that you need as much saving as everybody else. But the fact of the matter is, none of us can get to heaven apart from the lamb without blemish and without spot. And of course, that language is talking about the Passover, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Remember, during the Passover, there was a lamb who was slain, whose blood was spread on the doorposts so that the household would not be judged and the angel of death would not kill anyone inside. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. And because his blood has been shed, we don't have to go to hell for all of eternity. So the effects of Jesus' blood does a couple things. Number one, it removes guilt before God. It removes guilt before God. That we can have a completely clear conscience before our Lord. Number two, we gain bold access to God in worship and in prayer. That when we come to God, we don't have to fear that he's going to judge us. How many of you, when you hurt somebody, it kind of taints your relationship so that every time you see that person, you're always wondering whether or not you're still okay. But when we are forgiven, the Bible says that our sins are removed from the east as from the west. So when you come to worship God, you can come with boldness. Come boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that you're going to receive help in the time of need. You don't have to wonder, does God see me as this filthy person because you have been cleaned. You're also able to conquer the accuser of the brethren. Through the power of Jesus' blood, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. And finally, as we're concluding tonight, we are also rescued from the sinful ways of life. We don't have to live for ourselves anymore. Let's re read these last two verses and close. It says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, this is all according to God's plan. This was not an afterthought, but he actually thought about you and planned this before the world was even created. So, what do we make of all this? This is a lot of information. Well, I would, I would say some of our takeaways is that each and every one of us has a gift. We were created for a purpose. And we have to ask ourselves, what was I meant to do? What does God have me on this earth to do? Have you ever asked that question? 
Lord, you put me on this earth for a purpose, so what is it that you want me to accomplish? Because I didn't come here to accomplish my will, I came to accomplish your will. And from that, you have this healthy fear because you're afraid of disappointing God. You're afraid of his discipline of falling into sin and doing the wrong things and having to suffer the consequences. But you're also recognizing the love of God, that he himself ransomed you from your sin so that you don't have to live in your sinful ways anymore. I think about what kind of legacy I would want to leave in this world when I die. What is the one thing I want to be remembered for? And maybe that's something you can ponder and think about too. If you were to be, if you were to go home tonight to be with the Lord, what is the one thing that you want people to know about you? Is it that you were popular? Is it that you were really good at that one sport? Is it that you spent all of your time playing video games? What is it? What is the one thing that you want to be remembered for? Because ultimately that will dictate how you live your life. Because many people are trying to access fame, popularity through things that they do and build their own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. But here's the one thing that I want to be remembered for. As God is faithful, I want to be remembered that I was also counted faithful. I don't have to be the best at what I do. I just want to be the one who sticks it out, that was committed, that didn't jump ship, that didn't give up, didn't, didn't call it quits, that said, Lord, you are faithful even when I'm faithless, so I'm going to trust in you regardless of what it looks like. And regardless of how hard it gets, I want to stay, stay it with you because I know that you're good and you're working all things together for good. So I would challenge you this evening as we're about to close out in prayer. If you don't know what your gifting is, what your calling is, maybe ask a leader that they could help, help walk you through those things. Let's pray.